Very good. To ha- that's a very abrupt ending, but it's okay. We're here. All right. Um, if you've got your Bibles, if you could turn to 1 John chapter 2. And if you actually, um, some people were wondering, um, we used to have online notes on the app. We're actually flipping our app and reconstructing it. So one of the things that you could do if you would like to follow along in a Bible and notes that's on your device, um, if you have a version. Uh, Bible app, which is what most people have if they have a Bible app, go to that and you can actually have all the notes right there. You go to version, you go down to the bottom uh, little deal right there, which is the more and click on that more and then on that menu, just select events and once you select that, it's going to say there's an event near you and there's an event at Minooka Bible Church and Spoiler alert, you're here. And so go ahead and click on that, and then that'll upload the notes for you and have some announcements as well that are on there. And so um, if you'd like to do that, fantastic. Go for that. Otherwise, uh, open up your Bible to 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 12 through 14. Now, as we've been going through this letter, starting at the beginning of chapter 1 all the way now into chapter 2, um, this is, again, John. He's the, the self-identified best friend of Jesus. He's the guy that that has walked with Jesus. He watched Jesus die, and then he watched Jesus alive again. And he's writing to this church in Ephesus saying, listen, what you guys have got wrong, I mean, there's a lot of things you got right, but what your primary, like, critical error is how you see Jesus. You see him as all God, but not man. He was actually a man and God, 100% God, 100% man, simultaneously. And if you get that right, it's going to be a game changer in how you interact with one another. And then he kind of goes through and starts to unpack that. And then he gets to verse 12 of chapter 2. And this is what scholars are like, I don't get this. This seems like out of place. It seems like he was going somewhere. And then all of a sudden he has this abrupt halt and momentum. And what John does is what John does. He's, he's a poet, poetic guy. And so what he does in, in this particular verse, is, or this section, is he starts to get poetic and recaps the fact that this is all boiling down to something called identity. Um, and so we're going to go ahead and read through that right now. And so if you've got your Bibles... 1 John chapter 2, and in this, you're going to get the, you're going to pick up on the fact that he's kind of repetitive. He's talking about three groups of people. He's talking about uh, children, fathers, and young men. And one thing that we need to know that about this passage is that when he's saying children, fathers, and young men, he's actually, he's writing this to the entire church. This includes the women in the bunch as well, but he's using those classifications, and we'll talk about why in just a second, but notice the repetition. So if you've got your Bibles, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 and following, if you could go ahead and stand as we read God's word. He says this in, in 1 John chapter 12, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men, because you've overcome the evil one. And then he repeats back. I write you dear children, because you know the father. I write you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write you young men, because you're strong. And the word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Have a seat. Now, here's the thing. One of the things that we see in this is John, again, is calling this church to take courageous steps in how they treat one another. And I mean, overhauls in in how they're going to interact with one another. And in order to do that, actually, to be honest, do anything that Jesus has called you to do is going to take courage. And it's going to take courage and boldness. And so they're like, I don't even know how we're going to do this. And John, in this little like poetic interlude, gives them exactly how they're going to do it. And it really boils down to identity, how we see ourselves. 
And, and he actually, with those three classifications, he, he talks about three new identities we have in Christ. Children, fathers, young men. I'm going to spend the most time on the children part because that actually is like it deals with the whole group. And then we're going to take uh, the subsequent two and spend less time. But as far as identity is concerned, he's telling this group of people that you have a better family. In Christ, you have a better family. No matter what family you grew up with, some of us grew up with awesome families. Some of you are like, man, I had the best family. My family was the best. Great. John's like, you got a better one. In Christ, you have a better family. And some are like, man, my family was terrible. And Don't say anything because they might be in here. But my family was terrible growing up. And, and, and for them, he's like, you take heart because of the fact in Christ, you have a better family. We see that because of what we see in verse 12. He says this, I am writing you, dear children, and he's not being pejorative. He's not being patronizing. It's not like, oh, you're just adorable, precious people. He's like actually saying, no, this is, if we're in Christ, we're actually little children. Uh, we, have, we have a new classification that, that he's actually, he's our ultimate father, that we're following God. And he uses the word technion. And technon is for child, and technion is plural, that children. And he's like, you guys are little children. So again, if you come from a great family, awesome. But now in Christ, you're actually a part of a family that you have the ultimate identifier. You don't have to, you're not running away from the success of your great family. You're like, man, I just don't add up to my own family. Because you're part of a family that accepts you completely in God. If you're a part of a terrible family and you feel like, you know what? You don't understand what it was like growing up in my town. My town was small enough that people knew my parents or they knew my crazy uncle. And growing up, I had to like run away from the haunting ghost of them so that I could actually have a name for myself. And I couldn't wait to get to college or I couldn't wait to get out of town or I couldn't wait to move away because I wanted to become my own self, my own person, not someone who's identified with my family. Family is a big identifier. And if you don't believe me, just look at the Mayflower. My family, um, we're on the Mayflower. We're the Billingtons. The Billingtons came on over, and the Billingtons signed up to go to this new world, not because of the fact that they were, like, super stoked about the Puritans. In fact, they signed up as indentured servants to go into the new world, not knowing that the rest of the people on the Mayflower were religious zealots. They didn't like that because they didn't fall into that category. The, the kid, one of the, one of the kids of the Billingtons, Francis, he decided to pull a prank by taking a handgun and walking over and seeing how close to the gunpowder he could shoot it without it going off. The Mayflower almost didn't make it to America because of my family. And they didn't stop there. When they got to the new world, John Billington, the dad, did what you do if you have a problem with a neighbor. He shot him. And if you're wondering at how great a guy I am, I am in the history books because of the fact of the, that my ancestor, John Billington, was, he received the first capital punishment in the United States, in the colonies. That's a wood carving of my ancestor, John Billington. Every McFadden should have this like in our kitchen. Just like, yes, we're number one, number one, baby. And it didn't stop there. I mean, if, if the dysfunction in my family stopped back in the colonial times, that'd be one thing, but it didn't. See, my family got chased out of Kentucky and they moved to the place where you want to go to make a name for yourself, Southern Illinois. <laughs> and in Southern Illinois, they were coal miners and, 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 and a, a part of like an offshoot of Carbondale that was the absolute cesspool of morality. My descendants bathed in alcoholism and moonshine and bootlegging and they started a brothel. I'm not kidding. And that, that, was, like, that was what my grandpa Everett grew up in. 
So much so that him and all of his uh, brothers, brothers, that when World War II happened, it was a good thing that they went over to fight World War II because they got out of Southern Illinois. Okay, and that's not... Okay, it's true. Yeah, that's fine. All right. In World War II, and I've mentioned this before, my grandpa Everett, my grandpa Everett was the type of guy that did amazing things. He ran communication lines to the front lines, and they said, you did great, Everett. You, got, you did such a good job. We're going to promote you. And, and he got promoted. And we're, we're going to give you some R&R. And he's like, yes. And then he got drunk. And then he went AWOL. And then they found him. And then they demoted him. And then he ran communication line up to the front line, and he did a great job. I'm like, yes. And they promoted him. They gave him R&R, and he got drunk. And then he went AWOL, and then they caught him. And that was the cycle all throughout, the world, throughout World War II. When World War II was over, he decided not to come back to Southern Illinois. He, did not decide, he decided not to go back to Illinois because the, the government was way too corrupt and the taxes too high. So he decided to go to California. And he and his brother went, and they built a house in Southern California in Ontario. And, um, and the dysfunction <laughs> seems just to follow him. The alcoholism and the, and the brokenness. In fact, my, my mom's side of the family was in Ontario, California as well. And the amount, if you look throughout just one generation back of the amount of infidelities and broken marriages and, and destruction and abuse and addiction, it just is absolutely devastating. But don't feel bad for me because I got a great title for a book. It's uh, Bullets, Booze, and Brokenness. My heritage, my people. <laughs> now, this is the thing. You may be someone who has a past like that. But what John is saying is, don't worry about that. That is a reality check. You gotta own it. But it's not your ultimate identifier. Your ultimate identifier is you are a child. And that is the best thing you can be if you're a child of God. In Christ, you have a better family. You have an ability to act. That's who you are. But then all of a sudden, he gets into how it got that way. That's who you are, but what did it cost? He gets in the next part of that verse. He says, because your sins have been forgiven on account of what? His name. So you weren't born into the right family. That's why you're the child of God. You weren't born in the right country, and that's why you're a child of God. You are a child of God because it cost Jesus. Jesus went on a rescue mission to save you and did battle against Satan for you. You were enslaved to sin, and yet he battled that back. He went and found you, which of course brings us to Liam Neeson. Now, in 2008's Taken, you have Liam Neeson, who's a former government operative, right? And his daughter gets kidnapped over in Europe somewhere. And she gets kidnapped by people who are going to traffic her in the human trafficking market. And all of a sudden, he gets on the phone, the guy who's kidnapped her. And he says, listen, I don't know who you are, but if you're looking for ransom, I don't have any money. But what I do have is a particular set of, oh yes, he does. And all of a sudden throughout the rest of the movie, you see these skills play out. As he goes into one room with people, he's like, I'm looking for my daughter. Bam, bam, bam. Doesn't ask questions. Goes in the next room. I want my daughter back. Bam, bam, bam. He gets to the next room. The guy's like, can we negotiate? No. Bam, where's my daughter? Bam, where's my daughter? Bam, where's my daughter? Until he gets his daughter. And then it, she's like, you came for me. And he's wiping blood off his face like, yes. Now, if you're looking for the same story, it's Finding Nemo. Um, a little bit more G-rated, but the same idea. You have the picture of a father who is doing whatever he can to rescue his kid. What does John say? John says, I am writing you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. You are a child of God. What did it cost? Jesus doing battle against Satan to take on your sin 
But what was the point? What was it to accomplish? He says that down in verse 14. I'm writing you, again, dear children, because you know the Father. You have a relationship with the Father. You, you have a relationship. And, and, and it's one of those relationships that's not skewed or dysfunctional or, or fraught with baggage. In fact, we see that when, when Paul is talking in Romans 8. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That, that word Abba is, I don't know if you've ever heard uh, Pastor Carlos when he's been on stage and maybe when he's praying or sometimes when he's talking about what we're doing when we're worshiping, that we're coming and we're bringing our praise before Papa God. And maybe you were like, Papa God, that's so weird. Why would he say that? He's saying that because of this verse. That word for dad, Abba, is daddy. It's what a child would say to their father. Dad, it's not, oh, hello, father, or most reverend father. It's daddy. Paul says that, we're children, that because we're children, we're being adopted into the family. We have a relationship with the father because of what Jesus did. That we actually have that kind of relationship with him. Daddy. Man, some of you have longed for that your whole life. And Paul says you've got that in Christ. Now, one of the interesting things about that verse, it's that a lot of translations, including the NIV, try to scrub out. Because they, um, if there's a, ver a word that's supposed to be intended for men and women, a lot of times our translations today will say, well, if it's intended for men and women, let's just say that. This is for sons and daughters, not just sons. But this is one place where the NIV should not have done that. And this is why. In this culture, that is very important what Paul is saying. Paul said in other, in other passages, listen, as far as men and women, there's no division between you and Christ. There's not like men have got a stronger case to get close to God than, than women do. He says there's, it's an evil pl uh, level, not evil, level playing field. But what he says is this, you have received a spirit of adoption as sons. Uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in Manhattan, New York, or was a pastor in Manhattan, New York, he, he would talk about how he would always feel sketchy when we'd get to this passage because he's talking to a lot of New Yorkers that are like, oh, see, the Bible is just so misogynistic. I mean, it's always like it's all the, always the men, always the sons, until someone in his church who came from an Asian country came up to him and said, I love this verse. And she said, the reason I love this verse is because the culture that I grew up in you have no value as a female. If you're a daughter in a family, it's not only that you're a lower second class or third class citizen, but you're also not worthy as much, of, of as much love as the son. If there's a son, that one is worthy of investment because it has the best, that child has the best promise of the future. That one is the loved one by the parent. And she said, I love this verse because what this verse tells to me coming from my upbringing which was the same type of culture that it was written in. To all of you who feel like you're not worthy of love, who feel like you're, you're on the outside by things you can't even control, God looks at you because of what Christ did as someone who has the rights and worthiness of love as a son, as the son that you would be invested in and appreciated. That's the one that Paul is talking about. And, that, and that's actually what God is talking about when he's talking about who we are. Who are you? You're a child of God. You're a child of God because of what Christ did. But not only do you have a better family as a child, but you're also someone, because in Christ you have a field-tested faith. You're someone who has a field-tested faith. Listen to what John says there in the, that next verse in 13a. 
And then subsequently in 14b, he says, I'm writing to you fathers. Okay, hold on real quick. This ne- the, the children, it's for everyone. But the next two sections are two sets of people, fathers and young men. And the fathers, again, this is going to all people, but it's going to all people who are old in their faith. Not necessarily old in age, but old in their faith. Some of you were looking at each other. That wasn't cool. Old in their faith. And, and what that means is this. If you're someone who's old in your faith, you've actually followed Jesus for a number of years as a follower of Christ. And, and because of that, you're, you're like a father. And then the young men are the people who are the newbies, okay? But he says this. I'm writing to you fathers, men and women who are old in their faith, because you know him who is from the beginning. And then when you jump down to the parallel part of the second part of the poem, he doesn't even get creative, he doesn't even change up the verbiage. Listen, I write you fathers. Why? Because you know him who is from the beginning. Why does John stay on point? Why does John keep this like because you know him who is from the beginning? Have you ever um, driven by a factory and they've got one of these signs? We have achieved 329 working days without a reportable accident. To which I'm like, wait, what's a non-reportable accident? What happened there? But, I, but you, why, the reason that you've got this is it's, it's intended to give you some type of confidence as someone who's seeing the sign. This place has got 329 full working days without some type of catastrophe. And the higher the number, especially in a nuclear place, the better you feel. This place has got 1,234 days without an accident. What you don't want to see is this. Right? Because all of a sudden you're like, oh no. I drove by here yesterday. What happened? Right? And what that is intended to give you is, is a, a, a screenshot of the fact that this place is someplace that has not shown themselves to be consecu- consecutively and consistently safe. Your assurance, your trust was in this place, but all of a sudden you're like, wow, okay. We're resetting the clock because whatever it was that we were putting our hope in, our trust in, was not faithfully reliable. Which brings us to Raging Bull. I don't know if you guys have ever been on this ride at Six Flags, but, but this is something, and I've talked about this before. I love roller coasters. I, I hate the ones that take you like, the, they're not roller coasters, they're just dumb. They take you up and they drop you. If you like that, you're, you're sick. There's something wrong with you, but these are great. I love, I love roller coasters. And the summer that Raging Bull came out, I was a youth pastor to high schoolers and junior hires, and I brought the junior hires to Six Flags. I was super pumped about it. And I'm like, all right, we're going to go on Raging Bull. This is great. I'm like, yeah. And this one girl's like, what's Raging Bull? I've never been on a roller coaster. Oh, really? <laughs> never? No, I've never been. My parents are afraid. I'm like, well, today you're going to go on a roller coaster. I know the first one you're going to go on. Raging Bull. And I had never been on it, but I was like, okay, this is, let's, let's start this off high so that everything else is going to be downhill from there for her. And so we get over to the, to the line and we're um, in line and all the junior hires are there. And she's like, I don't know. I feel really insecure. I'm like, no, it's cool. Just stand in line the whole time. If you change your mind at the end, you could tap out. You could walk out. They're not going to like ca- charge you extra or shame you in front of everyone. You can just walk off. It'll be fine. But just listen to me. I want to convince you that this is a good idea. She's like, okay. And so the whole like 45 minutes, we're standing in line for this new ride at Six Flags. She's like, I just don't. I'm like, it's going to be awesome. You're going to walk out of this thinking it's so great. It's going to be so fantastic. I don't know. And then all of a sudden we get up there and she sits in the, the, the thing and I sit down next to her and there's all these other junior hires that we're, they're locking in. And all of a sudden, she's like, I actually feel pretty good about this. I'm excited. And I'm like, all right. And all of a sudden something came over me. I'm like, wait, hold on a second. And all of a sudden, I'm like, wait, 
This is the first summer. How many safety tests did this thing have? You start to see the curvature of the earth. Like, this was a really bad idea. Why did I do this? Why did I do this? Why did I take other people's children on this? Why? And she's like, this is great. I'm like, this is not a good idea. The oxygen level is getting thin. I'm closing my eyes and having a panic attack. She looks over and like, you should open your eyes. This is great. I'm like, why was I freaking out? I was freaking out because this, I, I didn't know how, how, who, how many times have they, I'm a guinea pig. I am like the first run on this thing. What was the problem? The problem was it did not have enough age for me to have enough trust in it. I didn't know if it was field tested or not. What is John saying? John is saying we have a field tested faith. Why? Fathers, if you've been around in your faith long enough, old people, old people in your faith, and I don't care if you're 20 or 82, if you're, if you're old enough in your faith where you've logged enough years following Jesus, you've been disappointed. You've had things happen in life where you're like, where were you God on that? Why didn't you intervene in that? Why is it this is so difficult? Why did this person have to die? And you've gone through enough of those things and gotten through that where you're like, I don't even know if my faith can handle this. And you've gotten to the other side of it. And all of a sudden you look back and you go, you see his fingerprints all over it. And all of a sudden you realize, I got to the other side of that. It didn't destroy me. He's still true. And as someone who's gotten to the other side, all of a sudden you realize that the thing that's helped you hold on is the fact that this God who felt so absent in so many points was there all along. And John is saying, that's right. And not only is it your experience, it's actually you're sitting on the shoulders of generations upon generations upon generations who've had faith in the same one. Christianity is not this new ideology or a new trend. It's not some type of workout that you could jump into for three weeks and feel good about yourself and tap out. It's actually something that sits on this ancient storyline that goes all the way back to the very beginning. What gives you confidence and boldness to do what God wants you to do? Well, you're a child of God. You're part of a better family. But on top of that, your faith is field tested all the way back to the beginning. Not only that, not only in Christ do you have a better family, not only in Christ do you have a field-tested faith, but in Christ you have, in fact, already won. When I was in um, fifth grade, I, I was a part of something that I was never asked to be a part of again. Um, I, was in a, uh, I was asked to be in a musical and sing a solo. And it was a good thing that that was the end of my career in singing. But that was, that was an event where I was so nervous about it because I had to stand up in front of, there was a spotlight and everything. I had to stand up and sing the song. Um, it was, yeah, I won't get into it. Lots of, lots of repressed memories on that. But it was, it, was, it was a really good event. My grandma came out to it. Um, she was cheering me on. It was super cool. And I remember after the whole thing was over, um, everyone went to bed that night. My grandma, she always, she would never sleep on any guest bed or anyone, she would never take anyone's bed. She insisted on sleeping on what she called the divan, which was a couch in our living room. Like, no, I'm sleeping on the divan. Grandma, come on. You can sleep, you can sleep in our bed or you can sleep in the, she's like, nope the divan. So she'd sleep in the living room. And uh, I remember that night I, I, I slept walk. I had a, like I had a bat whenever, when I got really anxious, I would like sleepwalk. And so I, I woke up in the middle of the night and I just walked into the living room where my grandma was. And I just stood there in the living room. And if you've ever seen anyone sleepwalk, it's creepy, right? It's just weird. It's, the person's just like there dead eyed. And I'm, I'm standing there in the middle of the living room, just like this. And she wakes up and she sees me just standing there and she's like, er- Errol, what, what's wrong? Nothing, Grandma. Well, what are you doing? I'm waiting. 
What are you waiting for? For the people to show up so I can sing. <laughs> Errol, you already sang. The musical's already over. It was great. It's already done. You can go to bed. Go rest. Okay, Grandma. And I went back to bed. Here's the thing. This is what anxiety does. Anxiety drives in you this message of, I don't think I've done enough. I don't think I am enough. I don't think I've done enough. I don't think I am enough. What keeps you up late at night as a parent? I feel like I'm messing this up. I don't think I've done enough. I don't think I am enough. What, what, what makes you feel anxious about your grades, your report card, your, your promotion, your schooling? I don't know if I've done enough. I don't know if I am enough. That's what anxiety does for you. What did Granny Hilda tell me? Errol, it's already done. Just rest. What does John say to the people who are newbies in their faith? He says this. I'm writing you young men, and again, this is people who are new in their faith, new to Christianity. I'm writing you young men because you have, not will, not are, you have overcome the evil one. Hold on a sec, John. You just called me out as being young in my faith. Okay, I'm not a mature Christian. I am not someone who's walked with Jesus for a long time. In fact, right now, I don't feel like I've overcome the evil one. I feel like the evil one has overcome me. I have fallen into sin. I, I just, my life can sometimes be a mess. Are you in Christ? Yes. You have overcome the evil one. He already did the work. He already won the battle. It's done. If you're in him, you've already overcome the e evil one. He jumps down to 14. I write you young men. Because you are strong. No, John, I am not strong. I am weak. In fact, I feel like as much as I would love to be strong, I feel like I'm more often weak than not. There's times when even in my brain, I wish that I could control my mind, but I can't. I feel like it's out of control. It's not in control. I don't have a strength of will or strength of mindset. I feel like my brain is reeling out of control. And where I'm looking around and everyone else seems like they've got everything together, I feel like I don't. And John's like, well, hold on, are you in Christ? Yes and you are strong, young one. You are strong. And the word of God lives in you. John, I'm just coming to, I, I don't know the whole Bible. I don't have like memory verses memorized. I, I don't, I, I, sometimes I'm reading the Bible and it's confusing. Are you in Christ? Yes. And the word of God lives in you. Lives in you. And you, you, you have overcome the evil one. The thing that we need to know is that if you're in Christ, the, the, the purpose of what John's writing here is to make anyone who's in Christ have absolute assurance of how they stand and have anyone who thinks that they're just doing Christianese stuff by showing up to church to rob them of assurance by telling them, this is not your story unless you're, unless you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you have already won. And that's, that's the message for you as well, Manuka Bible Church. I've said this before. I, some of you, you run and some of you win races. Um, I've never run a race that I've won ever. Um, but the thing that's neat about, about people who win races is, is, is that victory lap. Or even like NASCAR, the victory lap, those types of things. What John is batting home is this reality. If you're in Christ, you are not running a race to achieve heaven. You are not running a race to achieve God's favor when you're running a race, it's not like, man, this is all on me. I gotta, if I'm not obedient, if I don't, if I don't, like if things aren't going perfect in my life, then everything's going to fall apart between me. And, no. That race was done and taken care of on the cross. 
Jesus won the race. So what's the race that you're running? It's the victory lap. The victory lap of his win. You're running alongside him. Why are you obedient to him? Because he won the race. You're his kid. You have a faith that goes back to the beginning. And because of that, you're able to finish this off because you've got strength. His strength. Why is it that you follow God even when it's difficult? Even when you fall off the grid, fall off the wagon, why is it that you come back to God? Because he welcomes you back like a father. And because of the fact he's already won the race, you are running the victory lap. As you leave this place, you are entering the victory lap. You go to your home, you're running the victory lap and the difficulty in your marriage and your, between you and your parents. When you go to school tomorrow or in a couple weeks, you're running the victory lap of in the midst of everything else that's so far from God. You can know, you can, yeah, that's true. But I can be strong because he's already won. And because he's won and I'm in him, I have too. Amen? Let us not be a people that are so broken down by thinking our identity is all on us and our accomplishments, our achievements, or even our spiritual track record. Our identity is rooted first and foremost in Christ and his accomplishment. And out of the overflow of that, we run the victory lap of our life with passion and purpose. And when we fall, we get right back up. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord God, we ask for this. Lord, there's so many people in this room where it feels like um, running the race is not something that is even on the grid. Um, it feels like if, if there's running happening, it's running away from you. And so God, I, I pray that you just come into our, our psyche, into our soul. Help us recognize the fact, God, that in this life, if we're in you, if we're in you, Christ, if we're in you, Jesus, if you've rescued us from slavery to sin, you've brought us back to be with the Father. And this is a faith that's not something that we're just hoping is true or putting our faith in some myth. But in fact, we're actually resting on an ancient reality all the way back to the beginning of time and before. That if this is true, that even when we feel young in our faith and insecure and in inadequate, we can have the assurance that comes from what you've accomplished. Lord, I pray that you restore in us the will to return to the victory lap. That we recognize that it's only in you that we can do so, whether it's going to school, going to work, being in with our family, or just living in the neighborhood we're in, that we can represent you and run well, and run strong, because we're running on your wind. And as we see that happen, we will give you the thanks and the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Take that sheet of paper out to the guest tub. We'll see you next week.